Good morning. Welcome again to church. Uh, glad you guys are here this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. Um, earlier this week, I asked my wife, Julianne, um, if uh, she felt at all like this series that we're in, we're three weeks into, is getting too repetitive or if it is depressing her on any level. And uh, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it a hundred more times, very frequently, the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like Julianne's voice, so I ask her a lot of questions about what's going on in my life, and her response was something like this. It was something that I resonated with. These aren't her exact words, but it was something like this. She said um, no to either of those questions. This study is so freeing. Those were her words. And I said, well, okay, why? And she said, because it's good to be reminded over and over again of the things that I go to for satisfaction in my life that simply do not satisfy me outside of a relationship with God. And it's good to see the gifts that God has given me that are good, but that they're meant to point us to God. And so you can thank her that we're going to continue this series, but that's so true. It's so true that We are often like the Israelites of the Old Testament where we just forget. And from one week to the next, we need another reminder of the goodness of God. I was reminded again this week of Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he said this, The thief, who is Satan, has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And then Jesus said, But I have come so that you might have life, and not just life, abundant life, life more abundantly. So Jesus says, I came to give you good life, good abundant life, not just someday in the future, but life abundant right now. You and I can be confident in studying Ecclesiastes that this book exists for our joy. There are no promises in it that you won't ever have any hurdles in life, that it's going to be easy. But like I said, much like the Israelites, we forget. And so God, in his goodness, what he's doing here in Ecclesiastes is he's continuing to remind us of where life and joy and freedom and purpose come from. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is where God just shows us joy and purpose in life with him. Why does he do this? Why does God care so much? Well, our joy and our purpose, they exist to glorify him. And when God is glorified, we're satisfied. It's the way we were created. It's the, there's, um, Augustine actually famously wrote, and so many of us know this quote, but he famously wrote this, you made us for yourself, yourself being God. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And Ecclesiastes is going to continue to tell us that even in the mundane things of life, we have purpose and satisfaction when we have God, because even the mundane things of life are laced with purpose from God. The outcome of a right understanding of what Solomon is doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes is this, we have comfort. Tell me you don't want that. We have a humble sense of security, again, something we all want. And we have a better understanding of the significance of our own lives. So up to this point in Ecclesiastes, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, but Solomon has taught us that if this cursed world is all that there is, then all of our actions in this life are futile. If it's just about what's under the sun, then life is futile. 
Remember that his thesis statement in chapter 1 was something like this, life is empty under the sun. Maybe a good way to put chapter 1 in a nutshell is this, we do things that don't matter and then we die. Pretty uplifting, isn't it? In this reality, nothing in which you look to for meaning and nothing that you turn to to distract yourself from the harsh realities of life really work. So, so far in our study, Solomon has exposed the emptiness of pleasure by itself, the emptiness of wisdom, of work and money, and anything that we extend so much energy on. Why does he attack all of these things in in our lives? And really, he's doing it in his own life, too. Here's why. He's exposing for us the foolishness of a life that is lived without God. His goal is to push us to the enjoyment of God and his gifts. Why? Because he knows that satisfaction in God is the meaningful life. Satisfaction in God is the meaningful life. It is the life abundant that Jesus promises. And so the Holy Spirit's ultimate point in this inspired book from the Bible, Ecclesiastes, is to teach us that everything is meaningless unless you have Jesus. And then when you have Jesus, everything is meaningful. So today Solomon is going to move to the subject of time. He's not done attacking all of our systems of life yet. He's moving to the uh, subject of time. And like he does, what he's going to do is he's going to start out by forcing us to ask the question, what is the meaning of all of this? Before we get into this passage, I want to talk about our infatuation with time for just a minute. My guess is that even if we don't say it, we are a people who in some way, shape, or form, we live for time. Our culture really values time in a lot of ways. You have likely heard the phrase that timing is everything. The difference between a good joke and a bad joke can often be a person's sense of timing, right? You can tell a really good joke at a funeral, but that might not be the right time. The difference between an underdone hamburger on the grill that is pink and an overcooked clump of charcoal is timing, right? We also value the 24 hours that we have in a day. My guess is that most of us have multiple clocks on our walls and four or five calendars in our homes or our offices, unless you are younger and then your calendar is just in your pocket. I'm not sure that I need to convince you, but... We value time. Many of us wear time on our wrists. And most of us, again, have time on our phones, which are constantly with us. And I think that most of us would agree that time and timing is something that we are constantly thinking about. This morning it was, are we going to get to church on time? That's maybe more of a second service question. (laughs) Are we going to get to work on time? Getting our kids to school on time? How much time do I have to sleep? Does anybody do that when you go to bed? Okay, six hours, I should be okay tomorrow. Like, and because of all of this, we like to believe that we have control over our time. Because we think about it so much, we like to believe that we have control over our time. But I think it's also true that for many of us, we can feel this great tension when we think about time. Here's what I mean. We use phrases like this, where did the time go? Or, there aren't enough hours in the day. And those thoughts make us very anxious about time. For those of us who are 
more seasoned, which is just a nice way of saying old. (laughs) We think that time moves way too quickly. We look into the mirror and we see someone who we don't know. Who is that guy? I thought I was still 20. I used to think that it was funny when people would say this about their kids, and maybe some of you can relate, but you just blink and they're all grown up. I thought that was such a silly thing. I don't think it's funny anymore. (laughs) My oldest has his learner's permit. What the heck? Time moves way too fast, way too fast as you get older. But if you're younger, you might actually feel like time moves way too slow. You cannot wait for more freedom in your life, or you cannot wait for your driver's license. Your parents can wait, trust me. You cannot wait to be done with school, or you can't wait to be out on your own, or to be married, or whatever, and time seems to be moving too slow for you. But the point is this, time is important to all of us. It stresses all of us out, and I think in some sense, it frustrates all of us. Because we, we don't really have the control over it that we think we do. And because most of us have points in our lives where we wish we used time differently. And so why does time matter so much? And what does God's word say about time? Well, Ecclesiastes 3 is going to give us some answers this morning. But before we jump into Ecclesiastes 3, I just want to make one quick and important observation about the first eight verses. I think it's really important for us to understand as we read these verses that Solomon is going to be describing activities, but not really remarking on them. He isn't evaluating them as good or bad or wise or foolish or righteous or sinful. He's just making observations. Each could be appropriate, but that really isn't his concern. And so it's important for us to know that as we go to the Word this morning, those first eight verses, Solomon is just helping us to see that we really are not in control of our time like we think we are. He's just making observations because Solomon is a realist. And so again, we could say this, he's describing life, but he's not prescribing life. Let's start this morning with this heading. It's just called the cycle of life. As is customary in Ecclesiastes, Solomon begins each section by stating a main point, and then he proceeds to illustrate or demonstrate his main point, right? And so look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, for what Solomon's main point is. He says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So Solomon says there is a seasonal nature of life or a cycle to life. There's an appropriate time or a a season for every activity in life. Life moves from one season to the next. He is really pointing again to the reality that we we all just live in this same old routine that is the cycle of life. Solomon's thesis today is that everything has a season. Look at verses 2 through 8 where Solomon makes his point. So he's made his statement, now he makes his point. He says, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. This one I don't even really know what to do with in the Midwest. A time to embrace, some of you are like, never. And a time to refrain from embracing. Okay, now you're picking up what he's putting down. 
Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, I imagine that as you read those first nine verses or eight verses of Ecclesiastes, that a lot of you have probably heard these verses before. In fact, some of you are thinking, if this was an Awana verse, I would have killed it in Scripture memory. <laughs> because you know the song that was made famous by the birds, right, in the 1960s. Turn, 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 right? You know that song. But Solomon actually wrote this. So some of you are like, wow, I have the Bible memorized and I didn't know it. Okay, well, now you do. What is Solomon doing here in verses 2 through 8? What is his point in these verses? Well, he's pointing us again to the monotony of life by showing us that we really don't set the plans for life. He starts by saying there's an appointed time for everything. In verse 2, he says that there's a time to be born and a time to die. And so what he's really doing here is he's pointing to the bookends of life, right? You're born and you die, and then everything in between is just part of life. So Solomon's pointing to the bookends of life. For the sake of time, I'm not going to hit all of what he says in verses 2 through 8, but he starts by pointing out to us the sort to sort of create the problem for us because we've all admitted that we have this infatuation with time, that time is a frustrating thing because while you think that you have some control over it, and while it matters to you a lot, you were never in control of when you arrived on this planet, and you really aren't in control of when you leave. He says the same is true of planting and of harvesting in verse 2. You don't plant during harvest and harvest during planting, do you? It would be silly if a farmer went out now and tried to plant in the snow. The point is that there are seasons to life and you actually don't control them. You shovel snow in the winter, right? <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, talk about a relevant illustration. You shovel snow in the winter. Even if you wanted to shovel snow in the summer, which we would need to talk about your mental capacity at that point, but, or state, not capacity. Even if you wanted to shovel snow in the summer, it's not the season for shoveling snow. You'd have to make it, first of all, in order to shovel it. Solomon goes on to say in verse 3 that there is a time to kill and a time to heal. I want us to understand again that he isn't prescribing anything with this statement. He's just making a statement. And his words are not in opposition to the Ten Commandments where God says, Thou shall not murder. The Hebrew language has a special word for murder that is used in the Ten Commandments. And this word in Ecclesiastes is actually a different word. And it's likely that this word is actually referring to an sorry, agricultural setting because of the context of these verses. But the idea is that a farmer nurses an injured animal back to health only later than to put the same animal down. A time to heal and a time to kill. And then he says in verse 3 that there's a time to break down and a time to build up. Think of it this way. There are a lot of farmhouses that somebody has poured a lot of sweat and time and probably their money into, and now they're condemned and they will at some point be torn down. Solomon goes on to say there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he says, there's a time to keep things and a time to throw them away. A lot of us go through the process of keeping things or throwing them away 
when we have garage sales, right? We just throw them away by selling them to somebody else. (laughs) Solomon continues in these verses just making life observations about time. There are times and seasons of life. And for everything, there is an opposite, and we do not control those things, even though we like to think we are in control of our time. I was thinking this week about a time when I was a teenager, and my family was over at another family's house for dinner, and like often happens, the kids were in the kitchen eating pizza or something, and the adults were in the formal dining room having their adult discussion. And I remember overhearing a conversation that my parents were having with their friends that was about the kind of wood they had used for the new trim in their home. Any of you guys have conversations like that? And I remember thinking as a teenager that their conversation was ridiculous and so lame. Seriously, this is what you talk about when you get older? And I remember as kids sitting at this breakfast nook, eating pizza and just laughing hysterically Because we believed that we would never be that lame to talk about what kind of wood you just installed for your trim in your house. We would never be that old. And now, almost daily, and I'm not even joking, Dan and I talk about what kind of wood we would like to use for our kitchen cabinets. It's embarrassing. And we talk about the cost of gas, Hey, would you, what was the gas price on your way in this morning, wherever you drove from? And we talk about the cost of eggs. And I feel like I could add a line to Solomon's poem here in verses 2 through 8. Like, there is a time to be young and not care about gas prices, and then there is a time to be old and talk about them all the time. And the point of verses 1 through 8 and what I'm sharing with you this morning is that uh, the reality of the same old routine, you may think you're never going to be at another point in life, but it just happens. It's cyclical. It's the cycle of life, young to old, life to death, building to tearing down. And Solomon makes for us observations about time that maybe we just don't think about ever. And if you look really closely at verses 2 through 8, there are 14 complete statements. Each statement contains a negative statement and a positive statement. And so the math then on all of these statements is that time and the cycles of life, they cancel each other out. And so Solomon takes all of this information, everything he has talked about, and again he asks a question, and now he asks, he's asked three different times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.3 and now here in verse 9, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? This is not a financial question. He's essentially saying, what is the point of going to work? You work and you get money and you buy food so that you can stay alive, and then you go to work to get money to buy food so you can stay alive. What is the purpose? Is this all worth it? And I imagine that some of us ask this same question type of question from time to time. And we're stuck here again with a worldly perspective from Solomon. He says, what is the point of the same old routine? Does it lead to anything? But praise God that Solomon does not stay here in verse 9. Look with me at verse 10 for what we will call a new perspective. 
It's the sovereignty of God. Verse 10 says this, I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's key that we see something very clearly here as we try to understand what time means. Notice that verse 10 says that God has given this busyness to us. Why does Solomon say this and why does it matter that God gives the busyness of the cycles of life to us? Well, another way to say this statement from verse 10 is that the frustration that you and I feel or experience that causes us to say, is this all worth my time? That frustration is a result of a God-given burden. Why? Why would God burden us with that? Is God trying to hurt you or me? No. He allows us to see and to feel this burden because he wants us to see the reality that real life or abundant life is found in the fact that he is in control over our time. And because of that, there is a divine purpose in the cycles of our life. How do we know this to be true? Well, look at the beauty of God's sovereignty in verse 11 where Solomon says this. The very first part of verse 11, he says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. What is Solomon telling us? When Solomon says everything, he's not just talking about the way that God made the world in the first place, but also about the way that he has ruled it ever since creation. Solomon wants us to see that even the seasons of nature and the patterns of human activity that are listed in verses 1 through 8 are under the sovereign superintendence and providential care of God. The word everything in verse 11 resumes the everything from verse 1 that Solomon says, meaning that God makes everything. Even events that occur through human agency happen in its proper time. I understand that there's a lot of tension in a verse like this because we don't always understand God's purposes, do we? And so believing that he is working in everything, Romans 8, is really hard for us. It's hard for us to understand that. We ask questions like this, well, why did this happen to me? Or why did my parents treat me like this growing up? Or why did my family member have to die? Or why did God allow this to happen? We ask these kinds of questions because for us, we see the fuzzy, ugly cocoon. But God plans and he's setting in motion the butterfly. Or we see the painful and the awful process, but God is producing the value of the product. Or we can see today, but he is emphasizing eternity. Or we look at the external, and God emphasizes the internal. He makes everything beautiful in its time, including your loss, including your hospital experience, including your failures, your brokenness, your battles, your fragmented dreams, your lost relationships, your illness. All of the things of verses 2 through 8 have a purpose and beauty in God's time. But without him, what we have is a verse 9 perspective on life. Life is purposeless and profitless and miserable and meaningless and a net zero. And so Solomon goes on then to say in verse 11, 
the, he, he also has put eternity into man's heart. There's a quality about life, about human life, that really can never be explained by the rational, rationale of evolution. Here, here's what I mean. Animals are not restless or dissatisfied when their physical needs have been met. Take my dog, for example. My dog, when she is well-fed and sleeping on the floor next to me, she is content. She's content. She has no thoughts of anything past what she's experiencing right there. She's with her family. She is enjoying herself. She is not worried about anything in the world. Put me right next to her on a Friday evening, and pretty soon, and I should be satisfied, right? Pretty soon, I feel a sense of restlessness. There's something beyond the moment that I am in, something more that I am crying out for. The endless search for an answer beyond what we can feel or sense or our physical or emotional need. And it's what we call here in verse 11, eternity in man's heart. I'm different from my dog, hopefully in a lot of ways, but because I long for the face of God, there's something else outside of my experience that I need. You may not know um, that that's what you long for, but the restlessness in your heart exists to point you to that reality, that you have eternity in your heart. C.S. Lewis says it well when he says this, Our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful inns for us along our journey, but He takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them for home. All of this to say this, there is a longing in us for home. There is a deep call in the human spirit for more than just what is on this earth or what this earth can provide. The itch that you cannot scratch is part of God's plan. Solomon then goes on in verse 11 to say this, Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So Solomon says, you and I have a longing to know what is happening. God makes everything beautiful in his time. We have a longing to know what's happening. We have eternity in our hearts. How does this make any sense? But we can't know it, verse 11 tells us. What is God doing in my life? The end of verse 11 tells us that we live between time and eternity. God has placed eternity on our hearts, and we are also fixed here with a fixed view of time. And that means that we cannot know or see God's entire plan or fully grasp it, no matter how much we want to. The limit of man's knowledge is a major theme of Ecclesiastes. Why does Solomon go to such great lengths to expose this reality for us? He does this in order to drive us to faith in our sovereign God. When we realize that God has the complete view, He sees everything it makes clear to us that we only have a point of view. Knowing that we are caught between time and eternity pushes you and I to trust our all-knowing Father. We cannot know all the answers to all of the mysteries and the problems of life. But that shouldn't discourage us. It should lead us to trust the wisdom of God because we know that He makes all things beautiful in His time. Jesus actually said it over and over again in the 
uh, New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 4. He tells us how we should respond to God. It says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus said over and over again, you need to have faith like a child. Well, what does that look like? A little child that's in his father's arms is unaware of the many things that his father knows, right? But resting in the father's arms, he is quite content to let those mysteries unfold as he grows, trusting in the wisdom of his father. That is the life of faith. And that is what we are to do in our experience. We are to understand that God makes all things beautiful in his time. Solomon is saying, you might be trapped in time here on earth, but life, abundant life, this abundant life that Jesus has promised to us, comes when you trust in the eternal plan of our sovereign God, which means he is making all things beautiful in his timing. He knows what he's doing, and he is good. Solomon begins then to wrap up this section with verses 12 through 13, which say this, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So in verses 12 through 13, Solomon touches on something that he touched on last week in chapter 2. And so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it today. But he says that the enjoyment of life is a gift from God. God is sovereign and he makes good gifts. And so even the cycles of life that we go through are good. Well, who can enjoy the perfect gifts of God? Those who trust in the sovereignty of God. Those who believe that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Those who trust in the sovereignty of God, those who believe the gospel, those who are in relationship with Jesus can rightly enjoy the gifts and the blessings of God as God intended them. When we trust in Christ and are reconciled to God through him, then we are satisfied in our creator. And Solomon says that all enjoyment must be discovered by realizing that God is in charge. He moves on then to close out this passage with verses 14 and 15, which say this. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So all through the Bible, we read phrases like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That comes from the Proverbs. But it talks about the fear of the Lord. And so Solomon is sharing with us the key to not letting time frustrate us. The key to not letting time frustrate us is this. Until we recognize and trust that God is sovereign over time and and has superior wisdom, we cannot begin to fear God. Fearing God is the key to trusting God. And this fear is not abject terror of God. It is respect and honor for him. And if you and I attempt to live our lives without the recognition of God, ultimately, we will find ourselves, as Solomon did, feeling empty, dissatisfied, and restless. The secret of life is the presence of God himself. The secret of life is the presence of God himself. 
knowing that our times matter and that all things are made beautiful in His time. Here's the reality for most of us. Our struggle begins when we want to play the role of God ourselves. We want to be in charge of what happens to us. That's true even for those of us who are Christians. When God refuses to go along, we huff and we mope and we get angry with God and we throw away our faith and we say, what is the use? I tried it, but it doesn't work. I want to just lovingly say something very mean. What a foolish statement. Verse 14 is a clear statement for us when we work through the reality of his sovereign plan for our life. It says nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. So what do we do with this section of Scripture, of Ecclesiastes today? I want to leave us with two things this morning that I think this section of Scripture is teaching us. The first one is this. Let God be God. Let God be God. We started today with talking about these cycles of our lives and our desire to be in control of our time. But Solomon concludes today's verses by pointing us to God's sovereignty, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be diligent or that nothing matters. But whatever God does endures forever, according to verse 14. God is sovereign over your time, and God's plans cannot be changed, and He has a specific purpose for His plan even in the frustration that we feel. God uses all of the tensions and the frustrations and the burdens in our lives to drive us to Him. And as hard as it might be to believe, this is a sign of God's goodness. He knows there is no such thing as happiness apart from Him, and He wants us to know joy and abundant life. So how do I take this sovereign concept of God and apply it to my life? He's all-knowing, he's all-wise, and he holds my time in his hands, these verses tell us. How do I bridge his sovereignty over into my everyday experience? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, if he gives purpose to all of my time, if what he is doing lasts forever, if I cannot know happiness apart from him, then how do I let God be God in my life? Well, look with me at 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where Paul writes this. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Simply put, God's time for you, his plan for you, is what is going on right now with you. God's time for you and God's plan for you is what is going on right now with you. And that can be a really tough statement for us to hear because that is filled with all kinds of tensions, isn't it? Bad things can happen to God's people. How do I know? Well, this week I've been reading the story of Joseph in my Bible reading time, and Joseph was abused by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was lied about by Potiphar's wife. He was forgotten by the cupbearer in Pharaoh's prison, so he remained in prison. 
But years and years later, if you read the story in Genesis, he told his brothers who were catalysts of the whole ordeal, he said this to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's life and many of other people's lives throughout Scripture and all of our lives can be roller coasters, up and down. Where is God? What is God doing? 25 plus years in Joseph's life where he was in the drain, so to speak. It was the story of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. There was mourning, and there was dancing, and then there was laughing, and there was weeping, and this is all a part of Joseph's story. And he could have, in the midst of this story, bowed out, right? But he had great biblical faith that God held his days, and that God had a purpose for his life, even in his trials, and that God was God, and that he was not. And so what he did, this is what Joseph did, he lived to honor God, and in that he found great joy because he believed that God was making all things beautiful in his timing. I love the way that Thomas Watson, he's a Puritan writer, he said this, I must trust him where I cannot trace him. I must trust him where I cannot trace him. I'm sure this morning that some of us are thinking, well, how could God use this thing in my life as good, ultimately? And I don't know what we're all going through. I believe that God is lovingly telling us in this passage that we are just too close to see God's big plan. But we can trust Him. He has you, and you can trust Him. The reality of this passage is let God be God. And let God be God shoots through our lives with meaning. When we talk about times and seasons, we have to understand that God does not abandon one single second of your life under the sun. It is not meaningless. He fits each little part together, even the smallest parts, and every single season he fits into the whole. Let God be God. And then lastly, the worship team can come on up. The second thing I'd love for us to take home this morning is long view living is hopeful living. Long view living is hopeful living. Look again at verse 11. It says that he put eternity into man's heart. It's sad how many of us, myself included, forget about eternity. We were created to live in a forever relationship with a forever God forever. That's how you were created. We were designed to live based on a long view of life. But so many of us try to put all of our hopes and our dreams in the right here and the right now, in the right here locations and possessions and positions and people of our daily lives. And what we do is we put these unbearable weights on our relationships and things when we forget who we are and how we were designed to live and who God is and what is to come in eternity. And recognizing the eternity that is to come, it allows us to be realistic without being hopeless and hopeful when things around you don't encourage much hope. 
The moment that we live in today, the time that we now have is preparing us for the the paradise that is to come where everything that sin has broken will be fully restored to what God originally intended it to be. Long view living is Godward living. Long view living is hopeful living. Long view living will make you thankful for the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. God, thank you for these passages from Ecclesiastes and the reality that they point us to such great truth about you, that you are in control, that you are making all things beautiful in your time, that really ultimately you have placed eternity on our hearts. And Father, it's hard for us to see it all the time, but Lord, this morning I pray that we would be a people that find ourselves just trusting you. When we can't trace you, we trust you that we know you're doing something, that you're building something so much greater than we can see with our finite views. God, I pray that we would be a people that look towards eternity, that we have a longer view of the time that we're in just right now, that you're working all things together for the good of those who love you. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.